Welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, where you'll get actionable tips and advice on major gifts, direct response fundraising, legacy giving, and much more from leading experts in the nonprofit sector. Now, here are your hosts of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, Andrew Olson and Roy Jones. Hi, this is Andrew Olson. Before we get into today's episode, I want to talk to you leader to leader about something important. As leaders, especially at times of rapid change and uncertainty, it's easy to live and act from a place of fear. If we're not careful, that fear can paralyze us and keep us from effectively leading at work, at home, and in every relationship. But that doesn't have to be the case. My friend Ben Straub, founder of Velocity Strategy Solutions, a growth architecture firm that helps leaders and organizations accelerate revenue and maximize impact through data-driven strategies, has just released a great new resource for leaders. It's called Eight Things Leaders Say When They Fear Change and How to Confront Those Fears. This five-page resource gives you eight of the most frequent responses we as leaders have when we experience fear and the specific steps and language that you can use to move beyond fear to action. Click the link in the episode show notes to get this resource today. You'll be a better leader tomorrow because of it. Hey, listeners, this is Andrew Olson, and I'm, uh, I'm really excited to be here today with Tim Smith. Tim is the managing partner at Nonprofit DNA. He's got over 30 years experience in nonprofit admin, management, and fund development, and he's served as chief development officer at both Food for the Hungry and the Museum of the Bible. Tim, welcome to the show today. Thanks, Andrew. Great to be here. Hey, man, I'm really, really grateful for the time today and for the insights that you're going to share with us. Before we jump into talking about leadership, I'd love if you could just take a few minutes, tell us a little bit more about yourself and a little bit more about Nonprofit DNA. Yeah, for sure. Well, when I was 19, I was interning with a nonprofit organization in Kansas City, and uh, the uh, head of that organization came bounding in the room and grabbed all of us young guys and said, hey, we're in trouble. Get out there and go raise some money and don't come back without at least a thousand dollars. And that's how I got into fundraising. <laughs> it's a long time ago. And he sent me out a couple of times actually. And then they, we all decided that was kind of my niche. And I, I jumped into that career space as a vocation and have pretty much been there ever since. Uh, yeah, a few years ago, we launched Nonprofit DNA. Uh, we're a boutique firm working with charities, most specifically in the area of fundraising and donor development. Uh, we work a little bit with organizations that are uh, in a search process looking for staff to fulfill uh, fundraising and development roles. And we do some coaching and strategy and management of nonprofits, uh, strictly uh, focused on faith-based uh, 501c3 organizations. Okay, cool. Well, I, I got to ask as a follow-up before we get into our other questions, how much did you raise before you came back? Uh, I got the $1,000. Okay. And, uh, there were like four of us that went out. I was the first guy back. <laughs> and so he sent me out again. And so then they, it was great. They moved me out of the basement up into a, a real cubicle, you know. At age, awesome. At age 19, man, I had the world by the tail. <laughs> hey, that's cubicles way better than the basement, for sure. Oh, it was sweet. It was sweet. <laughs> I want to talk today about leadership, Get a get a sense for your own leadership journey and just ask that you share with us some, some perspective on this topic. So to start us off, if you could talk a little bit about your own leadership journey, you know, how, 
how and when did you figure out that, you know, leadership was something that you valued and that you wanted to do as part of your career and, and just walk us through what that looked like. Yeah, I was pretty young, Andrew. I was 28 years old and working on a big multi-staff organization by this time. And uh, program guy, I was uh, the, there was one guy younger than me on a staff of 20 uh, full-time people working for this organization. And one day my boss just kind of, came bounding into my office and he said, listen, I'm establishing this new position and they're basically going to be a position between me and the rest of the staff. And I looked at him like, wow, that's, that's great. He goes, now, he says, you need to understand a few things. Uh, one is that there's five guys on this staff that have applied for this position and I'm turning them all down. Two, they're all older than you are. Three, they have more education than you are, than you have, <laughs> have ever had. And, uh, and finally, they're far more experienced than you are. And I looked at him and I said, I go, well, why me? He goes, you know, I just think you're going to be good at this. And so that's kind of how it started at age 28. And he was right. Those guys kind of turned on me for a couple of years. And uh, they were very upset about not getting the job. And I remember going into his office many, many times during those first couple of years and just say, man, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I'm made for this. These guys were my best friends and now they, uh, they just respond to me differently. And I remember him looking me in the eye and says, listen, if you're standing in two years, I think you're going to be a great leader. <laughs> and, but you're going to have to go through a lot of hardship right now because you're so young. And, and he was right. And I, I went through a lot of hardships those, those first couple of years. But it was those two years that really framed my ideology, the way I, the way I thought about management, the way I thought about leadership. And it was the catalyst, really, that uh, you know, took me to everywhere else I've gone in, uh, in my work. I really don't think I could have been the leader I became without those hard times. And, you know, looking guys in the eye that, you know, that had, that he was right. I mean, I look at these guys, sometimes I'd go home at night and say, man, these guys are so much better than I am. <laughs> Why am I here? You know? <laughs> but I stuck it out and, uh, and it was, a, it, it turned out for the good. So I, I want to follow up on that for a second. If you had to pick one thing out of that particular sort of galvanizing experience, What's the biggest thing that you learned about yourself as a leader in that process? Well, I think, I think the biggest thing is it, it, it gave me confidence to lead. You know, I, um, you know, at that age, I was just happy, energetic. I was a young dad and just, I was living life at its fullest. And I love the fact that I was in work that mattered and I was doing good work and it put kind of a pressure on me to think bigger than that moment, you know, to think that, Hey, life is more than just, uh, you know, serving in this moment and, and really allowed me to invest in my own self-confidence and, and with that, my, my own development. And how was I going to develop as a leader? And uh, where did I need to go to learn more about leadership? And so 
but that took a real boost of confidence at, at that point. I didn't come from a family that, you know, stroked you a lot, you know, and said, boy, you're great, <laughs> you know. So this was probably my first time to really sense that somebody thought I was good at something. And so I had to really, uh, I had to kind of turn that corner and believe in myself. That's really interesting. Okay. So tell us a little bit about sort of, you know, since from that point on, obviously you, you've grown a lot in that time span in your career. What would you describe as your leadership philosophy at this point? Yeah, I, I think it really does go back to that, that guy that gave me that first big job. He, he was a mentor and a coach and he wasn't a guy that was what was hovering over me and micromanaging my every move. And I think that he kind of taught me the importance of, of mentoring. And now we, in those days, we didn't call it mentoring. Um, you know, it was just, uh, it was just managing. It's the way he managed me. But understanding that, that of being a, being a coach, I was a, I coached uh, basketball in my 20s and 30s, and so I understood coaching principle. And so he, he worked with me in a way to say, well, Tim, what you, when I'd ask him a question, he was like a therapist. Well, what do you think? You know, how do you, how do you feel about that? You know, and he was always challenging me to think. And I think that just resonated early on, and it really stuck. Uh, good leaders are good teachers and good coaches more than just uh, giving direction all the time. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Let's, let's talk a little bit about values. So talk to me about um, sort of beyond coaching and teaching. What do you think the, the most important values are to be demonstrating as a leader? I think for me, it, it probably falls into, you know, two or three areas. One is just be really good at listening. And I don't mean just hearing people, but really listening to people. Um, work, work really hard at engagement and just that when you're with people, you're present, you know, that you're, you're in that moment with individuals. I think we've all worked for that leader or, or, or we've had that person in our life when we're talking to them, you know, they're just not there, you mm -hmm. know, they're, they're on their phone today, but they're you know, looking at their watch or whatever. And I, I never liked it when that happened to me. So I think the importance of just, you know, again, good listening, uh, good engagement, eye contact, that kind of thing, just to make sure the people that I'm leading uh, sense that their time was, was really important to me and what they had to say was important. And then I think the biggest thing for me is, is trust building, you know, that uh, any, any leader, you know, has to build a, a tremendous amount of trust. Now, when I was coming up as a young leader, leaders were always talking about loyalty, you know, <laughs> that they, you know, and how they demanded loyalty and that we need you to be loyal. And I think I, I think I translated that more to trust, you know, that, you know, loyalty to me seemed like a one way street, you know, that you need to kind of just make sure you're saluting the leader at the right time and honoring that person. Trust to me was a two way street, you know, and how, how we uh, built, you know, I felt like I was built as a leader because I was trusted with things, even when I failed. And so I, I think I made trust a big part of, 
of my leadership style and the values that I tried to uh, bring across that when people were given jobs, whether, you know, like I was when I was young, if they were deserving of those jobs or they'd, they'd earned the, the role just yet or not, they had to know that they had the tr my trust that they could do it. And, and that became a real centerpiece for me. So other than saying the words, I trust you, what are some of the, the different behaviors or approaches that you've used in your career to convey that level of trust and to build that level of trust with people that work for you? Yeah, I think uh, overcoming uh, their failures. You know, I think uh, I, I can think of two or three uh, people that I've, I've managed over the years that were accustomed to losing their jobs when they, when they failed. Hmm. I think failure is the most fertile ground to grow leaders. I, I just believe that wholeheartedly, it, you know, it, that we don't grow leaders during big wins and a big uh, celebratory moments. We really grow leaders through failure, you know, because yeah. That's when teaching takes place and that's when mentoring takes place. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's during those times when I was able to convey to them that, hey, you're good. Let's let's work the problem and learn from this. And I think as you do that over and over with people, you know, then, you know, you, you begin to see them kind of parroting back some of your own values and uh, in their conversation with you. And when you fail, you know, so a lot of times the failure isn't on the person you're managing, the, the, the failure is yours as a leader. And how do, you, how do you deal with your own failure with that individual as far as transparency and things like that? So that's a big one. I, I've been doing this 20 years now and, and I can't keep track of the number of uh, instances where, where I've gone in to consult with an organization and, and one of the challenges has been a leader who um, can't handle failure, right? And and can't honestly look it in the face and and acknowledge to the rest of the team, yeah, I screwed that up. You know, there's just this uh, there's this block and this need for the leader to to maintain a facade that they're perfect and that you know they make no mistakes. What what's your counsel to to somebody who's kind of in in that space? and has a difficult time getting over the idea that they can't be, you know, that, that it's not acceptable to be perceived as anything other than perfect. Yeah. Well, it's, it, it's know yourself, <laughs> you know, and be a student of who you are. Um, I just, uh, just this last year published a book called what have I gotten myself into? And it's really about leading in a nonprofit organization. And I dedicated a whole chapter to the topic of toxic leadership. And in that chapter actually defined uh, different characteristics of particular leaders, whether it's narcissism or I'm very opaque in my leadership style or all the good ideas need to be my ideas, that kind of leader and that type of thing. And I think, I think uh, the hardest thing for a lot of leaders is to embrace their own humanity and the fact that they they do make mistakes. They, 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 they do fail. And I think if you can't own that, it's really hard to build that, uh, that trust, you know, with the people that you're leading, if they can't really see you in your, in your frail moments, in your moments of humanity and, you know, where we make mistakes or we overreact or we lost our temper or something like that. And then just owning that. And, and I think, um, 
you know, I don't think I was really great at that when I was first starting out because I didn't want people to ever see me as a failure. Sure. You know? And but as you get older and you've been through a few of these uh, experiences, I think you begin to embrace it better. So I think it's one of the things I really try to teach young leaders is and coach them on is just, you know, accept up front, you're going to get it wrong now and then and own it. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. Next question. I, I'd love to know what motivates you as a leader. Wow. Um, I, I think I am personally motivated through the, just through the, the, the process of seeing other people develop. And uh, some of the members of our team, if you, if you take a good look at us side by side, you'll notice the age difference. You know, I'm, I'm probably 15 to 20 years older than most of the men and women that are on our team today. And for me, all of those individuals first walked in my office or, or first connected with me when they were in their early 20s. And most of them today are in their late 30s to early 40s. And the, the fulfillment that I have today as a leader is having watched them develop, is the growth that I've seen in them to go from a maybe a just tenacious question asker of why did you do it that way? What are you thinking when you said this? Of Or just the overbearing personality or a, hey, I'm... 29 years old and surely I've got it all figured out, you know, <laughs> so, um, you know, and I have some of those, those are real life uh, experiences with some members of our team when they were younger. And today I look at, you know, some of those men and women that are, that are still working with me after all those years and they're the smart ones. You know, I feel like um, I'm kind of holding their bags now and, they uh, just watch that. And so for me, the motivation is growth, is to, see is to see development and fulfillment. And fundraising, you know, we always say that the real, the, you know, to me, the, the fulfillment to me isn't just raising money. It's that process and that we build in organizations to help them do that. I feel the same way about people. It's not just thinking about what they could be one day but the process of helping them grow into that, into that person. So that's what I enjoy is when I see the lights come on and, uh, and they get it and they're not thinking, they're just leading. You know? So I suspect I know the answer to this, but in follow up to, to what you just said, I want to get your, your feedback on something. I suspect that you would ascribe to the statement that to be a really effective, really good leader, you have to love people. Do you agree with that? Do you challenge that? What, talk to me a little bit about that concept. Well, for sure. I, you know, I, I think, um, gosh, I'm trying to think who wrote this. I read this in a book when I was really young, but it's, it was around fundraising. They said it, was, it went something like this. The stuff of donor relationship is the stuff of friendship. <laughs> and I've always taken that, that I like to be around people I enjoy, you know? And so, you know, so for me, I like to build teams, not necessarily a bunch of people like me. That's, that's foolishness. It's just to have people with all the same kind of gift mix and strengths and weaknesses. But, you know, I think you have to be motivated that you just care about people. 
that you want to see people grow. You want to see them improve. A few years ago, I had a big birthday and my staff did this big thing they called Timisms. And it was all the little things they used to, that they've just heard me say so many times over the years. It was, uh, it was actually very discouraging because I realized how, uh, how terribly uh, uh, cheesy I had become. And now, you know, but they, they made a big plaque and they all, they all made these jokes. They did these little uh, one-liners of things that I said, you know, it just endeared me. It just, it just helped me understand how much I care about them and, and how, uh, you know, and I think, you know, I think people reflect off, uh, off of their leaders. And, and I think that, you know, it was one of those moments that I was like a very proud father almost because you could see that growth and, uh, and how the things that they probably struggled with and those little Timisms as they called them were, were the very things now that they, they carried as great badges of honor that they were very good at. Yeah. I think I think if you don't love people, man, don't lead people. You know? Yeah, stay out Agreed. of people. Yeah, totally agree. All right, so let's let's move on to a different aspect here. I'm curious to know if you can share with us what the the biggest leadership risk is you ever took, and and I particularly want to know what you learned from it. We'll be right back with the rest of our interview, but first, a quick message from our sponsor, Newport One. Newport One believes you can change the world, and we want to help you do it. We help nonprofits maximize their impact, not their agency's profits. We'll guide you toward what's best for you, not just best practices. Newport One believes fundraising is a way of life, not just a business. We can change the world because we believe we are better together. Visit us at newportone.com or email us at freshideas at newportone.com. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. It's one that uh, I think about a lot, but not... I've never really had to answer the question before. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think the biggest risk and, 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 and probably one of my biggest mistakes as a leader was jumping from a role that I had in an organization to, to try to start something new and big. And one of the things that I think I, in mid career that I wrestled with was what I would call uh, the, the new shiny object hmm. is that I'm an, I'm, I'm an ambitious person and I was driven to build things more than manage things. And, and so when something new came along that had an opportunity to look shinier and bigger, it was easy to, to jump to that. And I think that uh, it, I remember that this stage of my career, this was a, it was a huge mistake. And I just did it because it was, it was a bigger hill. It was something uh, bigger to climb. What I took away from that that has stuck with me, I think about it almost every day, is that, you know, understanding the value of contentment. Hmm. That when you're in a role that you're good at and you're in a role that you are fulfilled in, that sometimes we look at contentment as something that, is is that there's something wrong with us that we're just uh, you know that we're relaxing too much we're not working hard enough and i learned that contentment to me at times caused me to go look for a, a bigger hill to climb versus realizing hey this is a great 
place. You've built something that's really healthy. Now just keep keep managing it, keep building it. And boy, that was a tough one. That was a no. It was it was key. It was a key moment in my life, but uh, it was a tough one to wrap my head around. That is a, I think, an incredibly tough one. You know, I, I, it's interesting to hear you say that because I, I think I'm wired the same way. You know, for I tell people I have two speeds: uh, full speed and off. Right the uh, sort of the desire to always be moving forward is a big thing for me. And I think it is for a lot of, a lot of folks in the nonprofit sector. I mean, I think when we look at how frequently people change roles and how quickly people are to jump, to look at the next best thing, this idea of, of, you know, being sort of being content with contentment and, and the idea of, you know, being able to be happy with what you've built and to lead and manage it well, it's somewhat foreign to me and probably, you know, something that, that a lot of folks in our space ought to be thinking about that I don't know that we are. I, I couldn't agree more. You know, uh, in the middle of all that, I, uh, right in the middle of all of that process for me was a, was a big battle with cancer as well. And uh, now as a cancer survivor, I kind of look back, it, it caused me to kind of, ease back a little bit, reevaluate the most important things. And, um, you know, I mean, some people that knew me pre-cancer and post-cancer, they're like, what happened to that guy? And I go, well, he, <laughs> he had cancer. <laughs> yeah, shift in priorities. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. And boy, it's just been a great uh, lesson and honestly more fulfilling. I, I, I think, um, it's tough when you're a driver, you know, you're a type A personality and you want to accomplish as much as you possibly can in, in the time that you have, you know, it's hard to translate that back, you know, to this is okay to go slower or uh, just to, uh, you know, to be content in this, these moments. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a better person for it, you know, in the long run. That's good stuff. Thank you. I'm also curious, kind of, you know, in that same vein of things you've learned, I'd love to know what you feel like is the most valuable leadership advice you've ever received and who gave it to you. Again, uh, as I, as I've shared mentoring and, you know, there's three or four uh, uh, individuals have been great mentors in my life. And I think one of the greatest things that stuck with me was a mentor of mine who said, do not fear risk. And he said, uh, he said, your risk is, you know, by taking more risks, it's going to increase your pro propensity to fail. And failure is a key part of your professional development, you know, and, and boy, I, um, you know, at the time when I was younger, I'd hear risk and I, gosh, there was nothing I was afraid of. I would, I, I mean, I would take on risks all the time, but, but, but man, when the failures came, it was painful because I hadn't put those two things together for, a, for the longest period of time. And when I began to understand that, you know, uh, you know, risk is, uh, is a part of your growth and, you know, it's going to be hard to, to do really big things and accomplish big things if you aren't willing uh, to take risks. And, and that kind of translated in my leadership philosophy where um, I began teaching individuals and trying to train people under my care 
that where I'd say things like, listen, don't be afraid to take a risk because there's nothing you can do that I cannot undo, you know? And so to, to more than just talk about risk and failure and potential failure, but to give people safety in risk. And, and that was kind of how, I mean, that, that was great advice to me, but when it first came to me, it came with a lot of pain because there wasn't that safety net. And I think as leaders, um, if you're gonna encourage people to take risks, you've got to create that environment for them to land, you know, when they fail. And, and that's, been a, that's, that's been kind of a, a big part of my ideology, I'd say. So that I think is a, a huge thing for us to kind of hold on to for a minute, because you, you know this as well as I do, probably most of the organizations that you engage with uh, throughout the nonprofit sector, you know, they operate or they tend to operate at least on really thin margins, which means that there's really low tolerance for failure. So what do you think we need to do as leaders in our sector to, to create an environment that, you know, where, where that statement of like, you know, there's nothing you can do that I can't undo and don't be afraid to take a risk where, where the reality follows that, right? Because today, if a lot of, you know, if, if many leaders said that and someone took a risk and failed, their organizations might not be healthy enough today to sustain certain failures. How, how do we square those two things? Yeah, so it's a good question. It's a great question, Andrew. I think that's where boundaries are important, is understanding what our limitations are. So when you think about risk in nonprofit organizations, often that risk is financial. It's like, how far am I willing to let a person go and how much am I willing to let them spend before we just have to, um, to pull that plug? So, you know, in organizations I, I've had, you know, I, I liked, um, and I think this was part of uh, Good to Great, as I, in, in Jim Collins' books, of just, you know, the giving decision-making power to people downline in your organization. And, and, and I always, I thrived on that kind of freedom as, as a young leader. And so I've always given that, but it came with boundaries. It came with, so, you know, a person could not spend us out of business, you know, they couldn't take their corporate credit card and go crazy, you know, but they could take some risks within those boundaries and within those limitations. And so, I think you, I think that's where, you know, for me is like, listen, don't be afraid to take some risks. Here's the limitations that you have of what you can do and how far you can go on a certain, um, you know, thought process or, or program idea. I remember one of my first uh, jobs as like a, a VP of development, um, the organization went through a whole missional shift about three years in. And I remember the CEO coming into my office and saying, hey, Tim, we need to take all of our donors that are over here and get them over here. <laughs> and yeah, that's exactly what my response was. <laughs> and I remember, I remember looking at him and saying, I don't think I can do that. That's not, why they give, that's not why they give to us. And so that's where I think some guys had kind of gone off the rails on looking at a uh, program idea, not thinking about the the ramification that it would have on the people that paid for our organization. And so I think um, 
uh, it's a give take process. The longer you work with someone and the, and the better they do in that space, the more, you know, you give them more money to spend, you give them more latitude to lead, you give them more room to, you know, to manage changes and that type of thing. Staying on this topic for a second, one other piece of feedback that I've heard from primarily from junior level people in, in the sector is, you know, something akin to my boss says that I have the authority to do this and that I should take risks, but I get yelled at every time there's a mistake. Yeah. What kind of guidance or insights or tips can you share for those bosses, those managers, those leaders who are saying the right thing on the front end, but maybe the way they respond when something does go wrong is, is actually telling a different story. Help us with that. Yeah, that's a tough one. I think what you're running into there is a, a person who lacks sincerity about risk. And so what they're saying is don't be afraid to make a, make a mistake, but boy, when you do, I'm going to really make you pay for that mistake. So they don't really they're not sincere about that risk. Uh, they don't have risk tolerance, basically. And so they probably are that leader that needs to have more engagement and more input throughout the process. So I would say if you're working for a leader like that, one, you may want to go find a new leader to work for that gives you the room to, to grow, but that's not always realistic for people. And uh, secondly, though, you know, it's just, you may want to involve that leader more in day to day. And I, I've had, I've had leaders like that over me in the past that, you know, they talked a good game, but when the rubber hit the road, they, they didn't really live that out. And, you know, after a couple of thrashings after the fact, I found myself, you know, just um, involving them along the way and keeping them informed and, uh, and asking their opinion and asking their permission and things like that because they, you know, people's behavior will demonstrate their style, okay? So, so despite how we describe ourselves, the way we behave is the real us, you know, it's the real person. And, right. and I think that a lot of times it, it may be cool to say I'm this type of a leader, but it doesn't really fit their behavior model because they've been at it in a certain way for a long time. It's good stuff. I, I want to get your input on motivation and particularly I'm thinking around times like we're in right now. So we're, we're recording this on April 23rd, 2020. We're in the midst of this COVID-19 crisis. And I think a lot of leaders are challenged to keep their teams motivated and in alignment during times of crisis. What have you found to be most successful in your own leadership experience to, to do those things, to, to maintain alignment and to keep people motivated when the chips are down? Wow, great question, especially for where we are today, this, this day. Um, we're having a lot of these conversations. Um, three or four things. Uh, one, I think as a leader, you have to stay calm. You know, when chaos is uh, all around you and and like here in April 2020, we're being told to, there are stay-at-home uh, orders, there's shelter-in-place orders, people are not flying on airplanes, and uh, we're not traveling, we're not even getting together in small groups. So, you know, you know that creates some chaos 
based on how the type of work that you're in and how you've worked in the past. And so I think first off, as a leader, nobody's looking to you to in a time for you to lose your mind right now, <laughs> you know, so, uh, you know, keep calm. I think also in the midst of crisis, make sure you're engaging on a regular basis with people that you're leading. And so the teams that I'm working with today, where I would be doing uh, monthly or bi-weekly meetings, we're doing weekly meetings. Where I would be doing a weekly meeting, we're doing daily touch base. You know, just to be consistently, regularly uh, engaging so that we're, we're in front of each other and we're working, you know, through the crisis. And I think in, a, in the middle of, of crisis leadership, it's work one problem at a time. Don't try to solve the, the, whole, the whole crisis. I remember at Food for the Hungry when the tsunami hit Indonesia, there were hundreds of things that we had to do as, a, as an organization that was working in that region of the world, but we could only really work one thing at a time to to be able to really be effective. And I think in any crisis, it's, there's a sense that it's all overwhelming. Like, how do we, how do we solve this problem? How do, we, how do we get through this crisis when maybe the only thing you need to do is work on, okay, um, what's our best communication strategy right now? Then, you know, what do we do with our donors? You know, in, in 08 and 09, when the economy collapsed through the mortgage crisis, I think it was some of the best fundraising organizations did, and they didn't do any asking. They just engaged, you know, mm -hmm. how are you doing? How are you holding up? You know, how can we help you? And, and, you know, I think it's just working one thing at a time, but as a leader, even if it's inside this head between these ears, it's a, uh, it's a massive storm in your head. <laughs> you have to, have to project calm with your team and then work work through those issues because uh, if, if if you're in chaos everybody around you is going to be in chaos yeah that's really valuable so i want to one quick follow-up on that and this is something that i a couple years ago personally struggled with and that's the idea that you know wanting to project calm in the midst of chaos uh you know i, I had this one experience where i was I was doing that and, and there was chaos all around and, and I probably went a little too far to the side of projecting calm and I actually had a staff member who was bold enough to come to me and say, Hey, we're all freaking out here. And the fact that you're like totally cool and calm and collected makes us wonder, do you even understand how bad it is? <laughs> talk, talk to us a little bit about that balance of like, you know, definitely bringing calm to a situation, but also maybe interjecting enough realism so people understand that you see like how much they're hurting or how much the organization is challenged. What's, what's the tipping point there? Well, I think you're talking about making sure you have good empathy for people. And as you're going through, uh, going through a crisis, I'm a big, I'm a big fan of understanding the internal wiring of my team, you know, so how do they learn? How do they communicate? How, how do they process information? And I think it's easy to just put everybody into your frame of mind. And so 
I think in those moments, um, while, while you're operating in calm, you need to be engaging your team uh, in their language, you know, in their, uh, on their channel. And, and that's a lot of work as a, that's a lot of, that's a lot of work as a leader. If you're a leader who is uh, very much uh, driven to, you know, to lead by principle, then, and you've got somebody that just needs a lot of, a, a lot of affirmation uh, through a crisis, that's a lot of work for you, you know, because you'd rather just, hey, here's the basic ideas of what we need to do. This is the way we need to be thinking right now. But that person may have eight questions. And I've had, I remember someone like that who used to, hey, outside of crisis, uh, she would call me probably seven or eight times a day with, you know, with questions. And I'd say, Hey, could you just kind of, why don't you put all those questions together and we'll touch base <laughs> twice a day, <laughs> but she couldn't do it. She couldn't do it, you know? And so I had to learn, okay, she's very effective, very valuable uh, to the organization. So I had, I found myself adapting to that person. So I think we have people that might be more fearful, and um, they might, uh, or maybe they're a person that just needs all the information, you know, in front of them before they can make a decision. You know, it's just understanding that about them, you know, and I think, um, but I can see that. I, 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 I can see that problem. I think people probably had that problem with me in the past, like, oh, he, gosh, he's so laid back right now. He just doesn't get what we're dealing with. You know, I haven't had too many people call me out on it, but uh, I could imagine, I could see that as a part of just how I'm wired. Yeah, that makes sense. Thank you. You, you touched a little bit about this when you mentioned your book. Um, you you talked a little bit about toxic leadership. I, I want to go a little further and get your perspective, particularly around toxic employees and conflict in the workspace. What are some, some tools or some guidance that you use with your team to help resolve conflict in the most healthy way possible. Yeah, so as I mentioned, understanding how people are wired is a big value of mine. So tools like the Enneagram, Strength Finders, Myers-Briggs, I'm a big fan of those kinds of inventories that help us help us understand how people are thinking and 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 how they're wired. I wouldn't consider myself a uh, having any certain level of expertise in any one of those, um, one of the things, you know, I think they wave, you know, it's like, you know, for a few years, um, everybody, they're all reading Strength Finders books and applying that in the workplace. And it seems like it's been, and uh, really, uh, anything that allows us to try to understand the underlying um, design of how people think. How do they express themselves? How do they manage hardship and difficulties? How do they manage disappointment? How do they manage when they're being told no? You know, I think, um, uh, how do they operate when, you know, I'm a big, I'm a big advocate of how do we function when, when everything is messed up? You know, um, it's so easy to be positive when, when we're winning, you know, and, sure. and so, uh, you know, it's those 
first of the month meetings when you missed your goals by 20% the month prior, that's, that's when we really learn a lot about each other. And so I, I think the tools for me are things that help me identify how people are, are thinking. And, and I like the, I like those inventories. I like those, uh, um, those tests that kind of help us. And then uh, they create an environment for us to talk about ourselves. And, mm-hmm. you know, I found that real, I remember taking a group on a tour for museum of the Bible years ago. And I think we were in Israel or Rome or someplace looking at some behind the scenes uh, deal uh, related to the museum of the Bible's work. And it's the first time I ever heard the word Enneagram. And there were about a dozen people there that I knew pretty well. And they were all analyzing me having, <laughs> having you know, and it was like, it, it was very frustrating. <laughs> all these numbers flying around. And so I remember, uh, I remember going back to my hotel room that night, going online and ordering a book, you know, and, uh, and, you know, I've used it, now I've used it a lot you know, just as a tool to help me understand people and, you know, how they, how they work under pressure and things like that. One of the firms I used to work for, we used to do a disc inventory for every, uh, every staff member. And then as teams, we would do them as well. And I remember the first time I experienced it, I sat back and I, I thought to myself, huh, now I understand why there's often conflict between myself and this person or that person, because yeah. we totally approach situations differently, you know? So I agree with you. I think tests like that and tools like that can be really helpful. You know, I think there's oftentimes people have a fear of like, oh, is it going to put me in a box? Am I not going to get opportunities because I'm a blue and not a green or a two and not a four or whatever? But I, I, you know, I think if if we're honest with one another, that really, like you said, it's about learning how to to understand how they think and then taking that next step and thinking about how we modify our communication and our approach to engage with somebody, those kind of things can actually be really powerful tools to help us, you know, have healthier relationships. Yeah. I'll tell you, the thing that helped me more than anything was parenting. Um, My (laughs) wife and I have six kids and they're all grown today, but every one of them was wired so differently than the next one. And I think as a leader, nothing prepared me more for complex personalities than just parenting. (laughs) As as the father of three girls, I can tell you I'm right there with you. I I hear what you're saying there. You're in it. (laughs) You're in the middle of it. So we have time for one more question before I let you go because we're about the top of the hour. As somebody who is is an on-the-go leader, uh, you know, you and I were talking, I think, before before we started recording this, that, you know, typically at a time like this, you'd be on the road, you'd be flying somewhere, and you've already, you know, self-disclosed type A driver. How do you recharge and recalibrate as a leader? Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Um, you know, for me, uh, walking with my bride is a big part of my uh, life. And so, as you mentioned, we're in the middle of kind of a lockdown travel-wise right now. So, uh, a lot of times my lunch hours are, you know, just stopping and, and getting, getting away from my computer and my work and taking a walk, not spending that hour talking about everything that we're doing and, and should be doing and that type of thing. I think also reading, um, researching, you know, I like to keep up on just what's going on in the world around me. Um, taking time out to do uh, sports, 
I, uh, I love the local sports teams in my town, you know, okay. and those are types of things that create, um, uh, create, create space. I think the biggest thing for me too is to recognize at the end of the day, the work's always going to be right where you left it. And okay. so don't, uh, so many of us have probably come up with this, you know, well, I didn't do 12 hours today. If I didn't do 10 hours, did I do enough? And I think an important lesson is to learn that it's a time to disconnect and recharge. And uh, whether that's if you're a Netflix watcher or you're a, uh, you know, a reader or whatever, just to go find that, find that space that allows your, your, the other parts of your mind to, to foster and grow, you know. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Well, Tim, I appreciate you being here with us today. Thank you so much for the conversation. Uh, if somebody has questions, wants to learn more about nonprofit DNA, or, or just generally wants to connect with you, what's the best way for people to reach you? Yeah, so our website is nonprofitdna.com. Uh, my email is tim at nonprofitdna.com. Yeah, we'd love to love to engage uh, through there there's lots of lots of resources there that you can see to just connect with us awesome thank you again tim thank you for joining us for this episode of the rainmaker fundraising podcast brought to you exclusively by newport one newport one can make a difference in your fundraising so that you can change the world you can always reach us at podcast at newport one.com please take a moment to rate this episode on itunes or your favorite podcast platform when you rate this episode, it will help more nonprofit leaders just like you to help find us and get the information that they need to raise more funds for their organization. Thanks again for listening today.